Well, we're going to be in two places today, in 1 Samuel 9 and in 1 Samuel 16, so be ready for that. But I first want to start with a, a quote from author Frank Borum, who writes that the year 1809 was a very good year. Of course, nobody knew it at the time because every eye was on Napoleon as he swept across Austria like a fire sweeping across a dry prairie. Little else seemed significant, for the small dictator of France was the talk of all Europe, and the terror of his reign made his name a synonym for military superiority and ruthless ambition. That same year, though, while war was being waged and history being made, babies were born in England and America, but who had time to think about babies and bottles and cradles and cribs when Austria was falling? Well, somebody should have. In 1809, a veritable host of thinkers and statesmen were born. William Gladstone in Liverpool, Alfred Lord, Lord Tennyson began his life in Lincolnshire. Oliver Wendell Holmes made his first cry in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in Hodgenville, Kentucky, in a rugged log cabin owned by an illiterate laborer and his wife were heard the tiny screams of their newborn son, Abraham Lincoln. All of this and more happened in 1809, but nobody noticed. The world appeared to be in the process of being reshaped by Napoleon, but was it? The nobodies that nobody noticed were, in fact, the shapers of the new era. It was their lives, thoughts, and writings that would change the course of history during the next generation. And so Borum concludes the year 1020 B.C. was also a good year. But not because of Saul, the Napoleon of his day. No, in a secluded field in Bethlehem, God was raising up a youth named David, a nobody that nobody noticed, a somebody who would change Israel's course forever because while the people saw only a shepherd, God saw a king. So today we're going to meet these two men. We're going to meet Saul. We're going to meet David. And our passages are in chapters 9 and 16 of 1 Samuel. And we're going to look at chapter 9 first. Last week we compared Deuteronomy 17 with 1 Samuel 8. And we found that God had originally, as early as the Exodus, told Moses that Israel would one day have a king. However, in Deuteronomy 17, God laid out very specific requirements for this king. He was to be a man that the Lord chose, not that the people chose. He was not to multiply to himself horses and silver and property. He was to make a copy of the law of God by hand. And he was to read and meditate upon the law's principles every day so that his rule would be under God. It would reflect God's character and standards rather than his own. And in great contrast, as we saw last week, 1 Samuel 8 describes how Israel desired a king just like the other nations. One who would treasure his own laws against and above everything else. And one who would exalt himself, who would take, as we saw in 1 Samuel 8, would take, would take, would take, would take. That's what Samuel says over and over again the people's goods, the property themselves, and ultimately would cause them to cry out to the Lord as if in slavery. They would be returning themselves back to the situation they were in in Egypt. So what I want to do is look at Saul and David today 
in the light of what we learned last week, in the light of Deuteronomy 17 and 1 Samuel 8. So let's read first, 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 2. Would you all stand as we read God's holy, authoritative word? There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, and from his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. So keep your finger there. Go to 1 Samuel 16, starting with verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, was handsome, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word and as we think through it, help us, as always, to understand it well. Fill us with wisdom not only to apply it to our lives, but to to truly grow in our knowledge of your word. May we treasure it always in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we put chapters 9 and 16 side by side, there are two verses, I think, that stand out immediately. And the first is verse 2 of chapter 9. Regarding Saul, and and probably when we went to chapter 16, it really did stand out. And that was that verse, there was not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Just think Nathan Larson. No one more handsome than he. From shoulders upward, taller than any of the people. The second is verse 7 of chapter 16, when God speaks of Eliab, David's older brother. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So clearly the world often judges leaders by external appearance and physical stature. This is not to say that a godly man can't be handsome. David is described later in chapter 16 as being a handsome young man. The point is that the world prizes good-looking, powerful, charismatic individuals as a sign of potential leadership. 
And so let's, let's look at this man that is going to supposedly be Israel's answer to everything they want back in chapter 9. His name is Saul. And his name means asked for, which I find ironic. You may remember that the name Samuel means God has heard, which implied that someone, namely Hannah, Samuel's mother, had had been the one asking, but God had heard her prayer. But how interesting that Israel has asked for a king. And then we're introduced in the very next chapter, in chapter 9, to the one that they asked for. It's, it's Saul, and, and in fact, the word translated as handsome is the Hebrew word tov, which simply means good. Saul was good for the job, is really what that's saying there in Hebrew. The perfect fit, because he was impressive physically. It's also interesting that there's an emphasis on his height. You may not realize it, but Saul is the only Israelite in the Bible described as being tall. Every other time that we find tallness being emphasized as a feature, it's typically of people of the other nations. Tall people that surrounded Israel. So here we see that Saul is, in fact, a king just like the other nations. He even looks a lot like them. And the rest of chapter 9 tells us how Saul worked for his father, tending donkeys. His life was very ordinary, but it's the ordinariness of chapters 9 and 10 that show us that Saul was not selected because of his noteworthy family. Nobody's outside of Kish the Benjamite, his father being mentioned here in chapter 9. There's no noteworthiness of, of his father or his grandfather. It's not because of his proven experience or exploits or because of his knowledge and wisdom. In the end, as you probably know, Saul even tries to hide from Samuel because he doesn't want to be king. So truly, the only reason that he has chosen is because he is exactly what the Israelites were asking for, a kingly-looking man. And Saul is a 1 Samuel 8 king. Just like many of our leaders in civil government and in the church have been for many centuries. Now before we look more closely at our second passage again in 1 Samuel 16, look at this passage from chapter 10, verses 24 to 27. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! I mean, can you... It it doesn't come out. I wonder if Samuel is being a little sarcastic. There's no one that looks like him. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of kingship. And I think he did it purposefully and, and obediently. But I wonder again, as he is writing this down, he's already told in the last chapter he's going to take and take and take and take and take. But he's going to write down the duties so that there is this contrast. Look! He's unlike anyone else. You know, he is the king. And then this is what he's supposed to do. And then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. 
Now, as you read that, besides what I've pointed out, does anything seem odd in, in these four verses? The people in 1 Samuel 8 asked for a king, like all the other nations. They received such a king in Saul. Now, Samuel could have left and gone back to his home to wait out the disaster that would result, but Samuel doesn't abandon the people. He tells them how a king should act. I already mentioned all of that. But then he sends everyone to their homes, including Saul. Now, Saul has just been appointed king, and yet, as king, his first action is an act of obedience to Samuel. And so I think in this moment, and it stands out to me, it's clear who's still really in charge of Israel, and that is the Lord. Even Saul submits to Samuel and goes home. King or no king, God will rule his people by his word. And God's will will still be done. And if Saul does not obey, he will be removed. And, and there's a sense, there's an implication in that. As Samuel sends him home, having written that, we already are foreshadowing what potentially will happen with Saul. And I think we can see what this says about our own country's strategies and schemes and plans and leadership models. The kingdom of God will prevail. Some will be unimpressed and despise the ways of his kingdom and they will want strategies and leaders like the nations and they'll want plans like the corporate world and methods like the world of power politics and marketing. But the ways of the kingdom by contrast are foolish. They're weak to such people. And yet God's will and way will ultimately triumph. Even as Saul was beginning his reign, God is preparing David. And I want you to have that kind of confidence as you think about, you know, perhaps in mourning uh, over what's going on in our own country. God's will will prevail. Let's go forward now to chapter 16 and meet David again. In any group of people, there are many points of view, perhaps as many as there are people in that group, on a whole range of things. And there are some subjects on which everyone has a strong view, maybe a political controversy or a scandal in the news or a sporting triumph or failure. And certainly there are many issues, some of them important, on which there are sharp differences in points of view. And today it is believed that the right thing to do is to accept that we all have our own perspectives, our own points of view, and that all are equally valid. And it's said to be wrong to suggest that my perspective is in any way a more accurate or superior perspective or view to yours or yours than mine. You look at things from where you stand, I look at things from where I stand, and and the mature, sophisticated, tolerated approach to differences of opinion is to just let them all coexist. Well, there is, I suggest, an important subject on which a lot of people have different points of view, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. One view is that Jesus is the rightful ruler of the whole universe. That he is the savior of all 
and the judge of all. Do you agree with that view? Well, there are many that don't. There are many that reject completely what I just said. Are they all equally valid points of view? Well, 1 Samuel 16 helps us answer this question. We've already seen that Saul was the king that the nation wanted and chose. In their perspective, he was the perfect specimen for a king, and he proved it to Israel by his initial victory over the Ammonites as recorded in chapter 11. But that was not God's perspective. Israel was his nation through whom he had promised to bring blessing to the whole world. King Saul might have been able to win a few battles. He might have been able to rally the nation and provide a focus for political strength and stability. Maybe some thought he was the perfect king in that moment. But we will learn more in a later week how he disobeyed God and was an unmitigated disaster. We'll talk more about how to discern this right perspective from 1 Samuel 16, but before we do, some of you are thinking again about our nation. How can a nation live faithfully with a king like Saul that is a disaster, disobedient to the Lord? Well, how did Samuel respond? According to chapter 16, verse 1, after clear evidence that Saul was disobeying God and about to bring ruin upon the nation, you can see it there. Samuel returned to his home in Ramah and prayed. That's what you do. You pray. You agonize, but you trust in God. And you pray for those who have disobeyed God. You pray for change. And I want you to note something else that you should emulate in Samuel. Samuel was in mourning. He mourned Saul's rebellion and his rejection of God. Now, doubtless Samuel had a personal affection for Saul. I think we see hints of that in earlier chapters. But the mourning for Saul went beyond the king to the people that he was ruling. What a tragedy they were facing. Samuel was not upset because the Giants lost the National League Divisional Championships. Or because someone scratched his car. Or because he didn't get the job promotion that he wanted. He was distressed over the spiritual disaster that Saul had become and the welfare of God's people and over their condition and security. And I want to ask a question before we move to what we read earlier in chapter 16. Do we mourn over this? Do we grieve the spiritual disaster that is going on in our country? Even in our mainstream churches, many of them across the nation, there's something commendable and instructive in Samuel's distress. And there's something encouraging in God's response. In verse 1, God asked Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? How long will you keep mourning for him, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, as I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. As I said earlier, God always has a plan and a purpose. And even in the midst of what seems like disaster, God's always five steps, ten steps 
a thousand steps ahead. God is not absent. And so Samuel went to Jesse's home, and, and as they entered the room with only a look, Samuel had an immediate intuitive hunch about whom God had chosen for the next king. Did you see that in verse 6? When they came, they, he looked on Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is right there. You see a problem? Remember how I said at the beginning that we have what the world sees and admires versus what God purposes and uses. And even Samuel is tempted by the world's perspective. Eliab was undoubtedly an impressive man. One author jokes that Eliab was probably around 6'2", 225, met people well, was masculine but with social grace, the all-time leading scorer for the Bethlehem Soccer League when he was younger, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly used Old Spice deodorant, <laughs> or at least its equivalent. But we already saw another tall, good-looking man, and that was Saul. And this is a crucial moment in the book of 1 Samuel. So much hangs upon choices. Israel chose the ark in, in chapter 4 and disaster followed. Israel chose a king that they desired. Chapter 9, again, another disaster. But now with godly Samuel on the scene, certainly we can choose, uh, trust the choice of a faithful prophet and Judge of God with the fortunes of God's kingdom. No, the kingdom is safe only with God. Even the most faithful of leaders have to rely upon Him and His Word or they are liable to fall and make wrong choices. And so we look carefully at verse 7. And this is either the key verse or one of the top three key verses in all of First and Second Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, I, I talked about different points of view earlier. God has a point of view, and his point of view is often different than the human point of view. Verse 7 tells us that God is not limited the way that we are. He doesn't just look at things with His eyes. But verse 7 says even more than that God is not limited in His perception because the Hebrew of this verse literally reads, man sees according to his eyes, but God sees according to his heart. Man uses his eyes, God uses his heart. What does that mean? It means this, when God sees, he doesn't see things just with his eyes as man does, looking at the external physical impressions. God sees according to his, God's heart. Now, I probably have been throwing you by keeping referring back to his, God's heart heart but this is one of those times where I think sometimes in the English translations we are thrown off by what has been translated 
And I think John Woodhouse, one of the commentators on 1 Samuel, is correct when he writes that verse 7 says that man looks at others with man's eyes. God looks at people with God's heart, which in the Old Testament is a word that often indicates will and purpose. What that suggests is that God looks at people according to his intentions, his purposes, his heart, what he desires to do. And the fact of the matter is that Eliab, for all of his impressiveness, was not the one that God intended to be king. So God did not see Eliab in the same way that Samuel did who saw only with his eyes. And this understanding of verse 7 is, is not only important, but I think it is a key to understanding everything. It helps understand the end of verse 1, which in the Hebrew literally reads, I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. God had seen a king for himself because God sees with his heart and what he intends to do. Back in chapter 13, verse 14, we read this, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And again, in today's literature and books on this, so much has been taken to say that this means a godly man who has a heart just like God. But that's not what the Hebrew is truly saying to seek out a man after his own heart means that God is seeking a man according to his, the Lord's purposes. You see, it isn't as if God looked all around and tried to find the most righteous person in Bethlehem at this time. And then said to himself, oh, finally, a young man who loves me with all of his heart, I'll pick him to be king. He's innocent. He's pure. That's the type of storyline that fills up tales like how the innocent young King Arthur drew the sword Excalibur from the stone. But remember the rest of your Bible. None seek after God. No, not one. And there is plenty in David, as we will later see, that is sinful. What these vital statements in chapter 16 and back in 13 are about are God's gracious and sovereign purpose. There's an illuminating statement even made by David himself in 2 Samuel 7, verse 21. And you can see what he says about himself. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. That phrasing there is exactly the same as in chapter 16. Now, if we go back to chapter 16, and if we understand the particular way that the Lord sees, after Eliab, seven of Jesse's sons, paraded before Samuel, and Samuel now saw as the Lord sees, which is the Lord has a purpose in this young man. We don't know what it is yet. Then Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither is the Lord chosen this one. We read that. And finally, it says, And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, 
the Lord has not chosen these. The words have changed, but the idea is the same. None of these sons were the one that the Lord has set His heart upon. God's good purposes arise out of His perfect sovereign will. And if the rest of Scripture is any indication, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, God chooses often the weak, the ignorant, and the rejected, and He makes them strong and wise and influential. Why? So that God gets the glory. So God did not choose Israel or Jerusalem because of their righteousness, nor did God choose David because of his personal qualities and worthiness. On the contrary, whatever outstanding qualities we might see in David, and this is very important, they are the consequence or the result of God choosing David. Not the reason for God choosing David. I want to say that one more time because I think it's very important. The qualities, whatever outstanding qualities that we see in David are the consequences or the result of God choosing David and not the reason for God choosing David. We have to get that order right because it's the same with us. It's the same with you and me. You are a godly person because of God's work in you. The Holy Spirit working in you to desire and to will His good will. He did not draw you to Himself because He looked upon you and said, now there is a fine man or woman of pure heart and worthy of my affection." No, you were like David at war with God when he changed your heart. And the parading of Jesse's sons not only reveals that none of them was the one chosen by the Lord, this leaves Samuel perplexed. And so he asks in verse 11, is everybody here? And I can imagine Jesse about to say, yes, they're all, well, then he remembers there's still the youngest out in the field. And so Jesse says, well, there, there is still the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. I didn't think you'd want to see him. He's still a young man and certainly not the robust specimen of manhood that Saul is. The other boys are. Take Eliab. Why wouldn't you want him? Now, children, one of the most important things I can tell you from this passage today is that your worth is not dependent upon your looks or your intelligence or your cleverness or any other quality. Your worth and dignity is dependent upon what God does through you. You just need to be faithful. You need to be obedient to the Lord. You may be the one that God will choose to use for His kingdom and His choice will depend upon His good purposes. The Bible invites us to learn to see these things from a better point of view. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
Even at this stage, if we look with just our eyes, we will see that David was only anointed with oil. But that was not all that happened. God anointed David with his spirit from that day forward for the rest of his life. So where do the Psalms originate from? What do you think created a love for God and a great trust for him? Where did the courage to face Goliath come from? Was it some genetic environmental you know, coalescence of qualities that led to David being the person that was according to God's heart? Or was it the Holy Spirit working in David from this point of this anointing until his death that inspires a young man sometime later to go before Goliath and speak such words of courage. Something very important happened in the little town of Bethlehem that day. And in only a few short weeks, you'll be singing the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. My children keep warning me because it's our tradition in our family that the first of November starts Christmas music, and so you know they 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 can't barely contain it, and so I know that Monday means I am going to be hearing a little town of Bethlehem resounding in our home. But by that hymn, we recognize what the prophet Micah said. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now Micah the prophet said those words. And yet when Jesus was born of a peasant girl, birthed in a stable among animals, if you looked with man's eyes, you would not have noticed a thing. To see Jesus rightly, you have to see things from God's unique point of view. To see according to God's purposes, according to his heart. Human knowledge is limited. And because of those limitations, we make mistakes in our judgments. You cannot base your eternal future on the perspective of man. Every perspective is not equally valid. In fact, all but God's perspective will ultimately lead to death. God's point of view is the standard by which you must measure all other claims and you will only see properly as you learn His purposes. We must see David as God sees him. A young man chosen by God, equipped to be king. You must see yourself properly. A sinner, saved by grace. You must see David's greatest descendant, Jesus, as God sees him. The world saw Jesus as a man. He grew up in the town of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. There was nothing in his appearance that would make men choose him as king. He ate and drank with sinners, and worst of all, he died on a cross. And yet listen to God's point of view in Hebrews 1. God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As Peter writes, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is Jesus. Can you see him properly? According to God's heart, according to God's purpose, do not just look at life with the eyes of man. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us with the opportunity to stop looking at life, looking at our own purpose, our own activities through the lens of man, being impressed by the things that impress our society and world, giving in to the values and principles that it proposes. Instead, you have called us to think like you. You've invited us to examine your word, to have our minds conformed to the knowledge of God, of Christ, to have our individual lives conformed to his likeness. And I just ask, Lord, that you would continue to work in us to see with new eyes Help us to see according to your heart and your purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.